This is Diane Horn, your host on the sustainability segment of Mind Over Matters on KEXP Seattle 90.3 FM by mobile app and on the web at kexp.org. My guest this morning is Mindy Roberts, People for Puget Sound Program Director at Washington Environmental Council and a member of Governor Inslee's Orca Recovery Task Force. Mindy Roberts is here to tell us about the draft recommendations of the task force to help aid orca recovery and to promote their future sustainability. Welcome, Mindy. Thank you for having me. Would you like to begin by saying a few words about the People for Puget Sound program at Washington Environmental Council? Absolutely. Our program has been involved in so many different areas of Puget Sound recovery. We work for clean water, we work for healthy habitat, and we also make sure to hold our leaders accountable for progress over time. Would you like now to give a quick summary of the current status of Puget Sound orcas, our southern residents? The southern resident orcas are our fish-eating population, and they are not doing well. They were listed under the Endangered Species Act over 10 years ago. And even since that time, their numbers have declined to the point today where there's only 74 individuals left. This summer, the region and I think people all over the world really connected with the plight of Tahlequah, the mother who carried her dead calf with her for over 17 days. And it's interesting, as we watched Tahlequah, I think people actually forgot that there was another orca that died earlier in the summer, Cruiser. And then since that time, a third orca, Scarlet, also died in September. And I think it's a reminder that the population is in trouble. We just saw this year three deaths, and we're not done with 2018. There's still a number of them that are showing signs of starvation, showing signs of disease. What are the key threats facing southern resident orcas of Puget Sound? Today, they face a combination of threats that work alone and also together in a way that makes them even worse. First and foremost, the orcas are starving. They don't have enough Chinook salmon to eat. Secondly, the noise and harassment from vessels is interfering with their ability to find food and also to communicate with each other. And then third, they have levels of toxic pollution in their blubber, including PCBs, that is impacting their immune systems, their reproductive systems. And those same toxics are impacting the survival of juvenile salmonids, including Chinook salmon that they eat, and herring that the salmon eat. So all three of these threats, the lack of food, too much noise, and too much toxic pollution are really creating a pretty terrible situation for our orcas. What has Governor Inslee directed the Orca Recovery Task Force to do? Governor Inslee signed an executive order back in March of 2018, and he directed his state agencies to take some immediate actions within their own agencies. And he also set up the Orca Recovery Task Force with a pretty daunting charge. It was to come back with a comprehensive set of recommendations and actions initially by this November 2018 for the survival and recovery of the orcas. And then our task force will continue in 2019. Our work will certainly not be done by November of this year. And we have a second report due next year based on some learnings from this year as we go through. And we know that we won't have tackled all of the difficult threats the orcas face this year. Who is on the task force? The task force at last count has over 45 individuals and organizations. So we call that a big tent exercise the task force includes tribes, it includes non-tribal fishing interests, whale watch associations, federal agencies, state agencies, elected officials, state and local elected officials, and also nonprofit organizations like us. 
What is the process of the task force? What has it been so far? So far, it's been quite challenging to address the threats that have literally been around for decades. And all 45 of us have needed to come up to speed on the huge range of issues that are threatening the orcas today. And also work with over 100 individuals that are providing information on each of those three threat areas up to the task force as well. So a number of experts who don't have a seat on the task force are actually advising the task force on actions that will help in each of those three threat areas. Before we go into more detail, would you give a brief overview of the draft recommendations that were released last month? The draft recommendations released in September included over 50 actions. And I think the number has overwhelmed people. But as I've talked with people about it, I think we first need to be honest about what the orcas need. And if we were able to come up with three magic things that would save the orcas, we would do it. But that's the reality. The list of actions needed is long because the need is so great for the orcas. But in each of those threat areas, the task force is looking at actions. There have been no recommendations so far. That's part of our process in October. But looking at actions that address how to grow more salmon, how to reduce that noise and harassment from vessels, and how to decrease toxic pollution. The time skills that we're working on are what can we do right now to address this immediate survival need? So literally start turning things around in the next two to three years. But at the same time, some of these programs that include habitat restoration or um, decreasing toxic pollution, those will take decades to really work. But at the same time, we have to get started on that work now to be able to recover the orcas in the longer term. Has there generally been agreement among task force members about which actions to go forward with? We don't know. And that's why in mid-October, we'll be meeting in Tacoma, October 17th and 18th. My read is that some of the work that addresses the known threats that we've known about literally for years, poor habitat, lack of access to habitat, reducing toxic pollution, I feel like there is agreement in those areas. The devil will be in the details, I think. I think there's some other areas where the task force will not likely reach consensus this year. And the question to everyone is, well, what do we need to do to really help the orcas? So how we're going to deal with those sticky, sticky issues has yet to be determined. I see. And so when you meet on October 17th, then you'll decide which of the draft recommendations to put forward. Is that right? That's right. And we had a public comment period that closed on October 7th. And I haven't seen the numbers yet, but before that time, we had over 2,000 comments on the draft potential action. So I'm expecting literally thousands more. And each of the task force members was requested to communicate which of the actions on the list that addresses the lack of food, too much noise, and too much toxics, which ones do we support? And then also, which ones do we oppose? And when we were asked to weigh in on what we oppose, what would it take to get our support for those actions? And what I don't know, and that's what the people running the task force are doing right now, is compiling all of that information. And I expect in the middle of October to see those areas of broad agreement, which is great. That means we need to go forward as quickly as possible on those actions. And where there is disagreement, we need to figure out a way to come together and put the needs of the orcas first. I'm Diane Horn, and my guest is Mindy Roberts. People for Puget Sound Program Director at Washington Environmental Council and a member of Governor Inslee's Orca Recovery Task Force. And you are tuned to the sustainability segment of Mind Over Matters on listener-powered KEXP, 90.3 FM by mobile app, and on the web at kexp.org. 
What are some key recommendations to address disturbance from noise and vessel traffic? The noise from motors and engines and echo sounders, it's the same sound frequencies in many cases as what the whales are using for echolocation. And some of the recommendations include some pretty simple ones to implement, including just slowing down around orcas. We would like to see an orca speed limit, frankly. Anytime the orcas are in sight, people need to slow down at that point. And most vessels, as they slow down, make less noise. So that's one goal there. We're also seeing that the number of commercial whale watching boats, there's a proposal to actually put a permit system in place. So today, anybody can start a new whale watching business, whether it's motor power or human powered. Now the question is, well, maybe that's something that we could look at as a permit system and over time limit the entry to that permit system to reduce the number of vessels that are in close proximity to the whales. We think that there should be some days off for the whales, too. We'd like to see some quiet times worked into that permit system. And the third component to that is the whale watching community has been looking at impacts to whales for years, and they voluntarily identified some best practices among their community What we're seeing is there's a lot of interest in whales overall and a number of passenger vessels, just private vessels out for the day. They weren't out to be whale watching. But when you see an orca in the wild, it is absolutely stunning. And I understand the need to be close to the whales. But at the same time, getting close is interfering with their ability to forage. So we'd like to see some better enforcement on the water to make sure we give whales space. What are some key recommendations to address food availability? For food availability, I don't know where these proposals will land, but there are proposals underway to increase the amount of hatchery production for Chinook salmon. And the way it's being described is let's make sure that that is a way to increase the amount of Chinook salmon specifically for orcas to eat. But at the same time, don't do that in a way that you actually damage our native Chinook recovery. Our region and regions throughout the state of Washington have invested over time in Chinook and other salmon recovery, and we absolutely cannot damage that work. How much consideration has been given to breaching the Snake River dams to help wild salmon recovery? The current draft actions didn't call for that. However, that's been a big discussion throughout the process, and I think the public is very interested in that as well. And that's an issue that goes back decades as well. As we came up to speed on different issues, I think that's something that there's a lot that we need to learn about that. And there's been a separate process, frankly, to try to pull together the right people to answer questions and try to get to the bottom of what could be the benefit of the Lower Snake River Dam removal. So I don't know what the steps are from here in 2018 or in 2019, but I think the governor certainly indicated that it's not off the table at all, but we don't yet have a solid recommendation related to that. The actions that I see that are potentially related to the Lower Snake River Dams and the current recommendations includes increase the amount of spill water over the dam. So in other words, in the Columbia River power system, when water goes through the turbines, it damages the baby salmon, basically the juveniles that are migrating out to the ocean, literally chopping them up or creating some trauma that kills them later. But if the dams spill more water that doesn't go through the turbines, that turns out to increase the number of juvenile salmonids that do make it out safely to the ocean. So I don't know how broadly that is supported. We certainly support increasing the spill. Looking at the scientists' recommendations on that, that looks like the fastest way to produce more baby salmon, at least in the Columbia River system. There's been a lot of emphasis on the Columbia River system as a whole, but I think it's important to note that historically, 
the southern residents fed on Chinook salmon from the Fraser River in Canada, coastal British Columbia, even as far north as Alaska. They fed on Chinook all through the Puget Sound region, coast of Washington. The Columbia River system produced millions of salmon, but also the coast of Oregon and all the way down into California. Even the Sacramento River was a source of Chinook. Unfortunately, today, every single one of those runs have crashed. The number of salmon produced is just a small percent of what was there historically. So in the past, the matriarchs of the pods were able to navigate their families to different runs. When one went low, they would go find Chinook somewhere else. But that's the cold reality today is they have nowhere else to go for salmon. So we are thinking more comprehensively about the need to restore salmon throughout the range historically in the southern residence. And yes, we do need solutions in the Columbia River system, but also we need more salmon in the Puget Sound region and other areas of our state, not to mention in our neighboring states and Canada. How about in general removing barriers for salmon? I was surprised to learn that our state does not have a complete list of barriers to, to Chinook salmon passage. The information exists. I think this is where individual experts in different geographic areas know where those blockages are, but they've never really been looked at at a state level. So that includes not just dams or hydropower facilities, but it includes other levees and human infrastructure that is impacting. But at this point, we actually don't know where they all are, at least at the state level. And I think that's where it makes complete sense to tap our experts in these different geographic areas, pull that information together, and do as much as we can as of an apples-to-apples comparison on what benefit do we get as we look at each of those barriers. What is recommended for forage fish, which are food for salmon, which in turn provide food for orcas? It was interesting. This is a really good example where the process was set up really to talk about habitat, for example, prey or food for orcas is another way to think about that. Partway through that process, a number of the experts let people know that it turns out that in some situations, the salmon are going hungry. So the things that the salmon eat in estuarine areas are limiting. So that's forage fish like herring and other species. And it turns out we actually have very little information collected on those and compiled over the years to the point where we know that the herring stocks in general have crashed from generations ago. There are still herring out there, but we don't have a really good handle on the larger forage fish populations. So this is a really great example. We'd love to go to some actions, and there's some recommendations, actions actually for protecting forage fish spawning beaches. But at the same time, we're missing some fundamental information out there that we absolutely need to fill that gap. What are some specific recommendations for habitat restoration? For us, habitat restoration is the way forward on providing enough Chinook and other salmon in our system. We have recognized the need to open access to good habitat that is currently blocked by different barriers and protect and restore other habitat as well. And we literally have not made progress fast enough. I was just looking at a list of proposed projects that include things like adding salmon passage to a barrier, a blockage in the Nooksack River, the Middle Fork Nooksack that had been used by the city of Bellingham for their drinking water supply. So that's an example of it's not necessarily breaching the barrier entirely, but allowing fish to pass through there. That is the topmost recommended action in the Puget Sound salmon recovery world right now. But those actions also include things like removing creosote 
Cresoted marine pilings from the marine environment, that's a source of another class of pollutants called polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, or PAHs. And then other habitat recommendations include increasing the amount of estuary habitat. So estuaries are kind of like a nursery for young salmon. They need that space, and their bodies are undergoing a transition from freshwater to saltwater, so they need to spend time there. But that's also been where we've developed our port areas and our urban areas. That was what served a need for Washington State early in the day. But it turns out that that was also critical habitat. So we're looking today at what are the highest priorities for restoring estuarine habitat, as well as allowing more access to good habitat in rivers and streams. You are tuned to the sustainability segment of Mind Over Matters on KEXP Seattle 90.3 FM, by mobile app, and on the web at kexp.org. I'm Diane Horn, and my guest is Mindy Roberts, People for Puget Sound Program Director at Washington Environmental Council and a member of Governor Inslee's Orca Recovery Task Force. Well, you've said a few words about this already, but what are some key recommendations to address pollution? For pollution, the biggest source of toxic pollution in particular into Puget Sound is coming from stormwater. So rainfall that hits our hard surfaces like roadways, the tops and sides of buildings. As that rainfall runs off those surfaces, it picks up pollution with it. So some of the most concentrated sources of toxic pollution are in runoff from roadways and our more urban areas. So the recommendations include there is an existing program today that actually helps local governments retrofit existing areas of development to improve pollution removal and then also slow down stormwater before it gets into Puget Sound. Most of the areas that are developed around our region today happen before our modern approaches to stormwater. So today, new development triggers certain rules that have to be applied But existing development is still contributing significant sources of toxic pollution. So there's a program that incentivizes local governments and provides funding that helps them do more with that. So I was just looking at a list of projects. Some examples of controlling stormwater pollution include enhanced street sweeping programs in Snohomish County is one idea. It's actually using natural stormwater systems. There's a Green stormwater infrastructure refers to a whole set of approaches that uses plants and soils to help store water, slow down water that runs off of paved surfaces. And then also it it actually holds some of the pollution and doesn't release it into Puget Sound. But the recommendations don't just wait until stormwater is the problem. There's a number of recommendations that are designed to prevent pollution from happening in the first place. So there's a number of consumer products, for example, that slowly leach release toxic chemicals, and that affects humans as well. But there's some smart actions in there that really strategically use existing authorities and maybe some expanded authorities that help our state eliminate consumer products with those toxics. But removing toxics before they create a problem is far more cost-effective. So we are looking at a balance of recommendations from prevention to source control to stormwater. And then we know we have toxic chemical sites within the Puget Sound region as well, We think we need to speed those cleanups up as much as we can. In your view, which recommendations under consideration are most critical? We've been asked that question a number of times, and and the truth of the matter is, I don't think I could give you our top three or even our top ten at this point, because I do feel like it is our responsibility as the task force and my responsibility as a public interest organization to speak to what the whales need. And I think that we need very smart solutions on increasing the amount of salmon available for orcas. 
first and foremost is habitat. And that alone entails all sorts of work to protect the good habitat that we have, but also restore more habitat. We know we need to control noise and harassment from vessels and pollution as well. So within the list of over 50 actions, I don't think we should reduce those to make it easier on human systems. I think we need to be honest about what the orcas need. And frankly, a lot of these aren't terribly surprising. We've known about these for decades. We just really, at this point, need to lean in and dig deeper to do them. In your view, what improvements might be made in the draft recommendations? I'd like to see the draft recommendations more specific. There's a tendency to speak in generalities to make language more understandable. I completely understand that. But at the same time, our organization is looking at the 2019 legislative session that starts in January of 2019. And we'd like to see more specifics in terms of what additional authorities are needed. What are the policy needs? And then get to work starting to work with our legislators and others to get that rolling. We'd also like to see some more specifics on the dollars that are needed to implement this. I mentioned habitat restoration and protection and pollution reduction. Those are existing programs that we've had at the state level for a number of years, and we literally have not funded them as much as been requested. So we would like to get started now on understanding, well, how much are we talking about? What do we need? And I think the legislators have been asking those same questions as well. What are the best ways to see that recommendations are enacted in an untimely fashion? That's an excellent question, something I've been thinking about as well. I really think that the ORCAs deserve an oversight team, you know, kind of an implementation team. The task force has been created to come up with the actions that are needed, but that might not be the right structure to make sure that we continue to focus on the needs of ORCAs moving forward. We have state recovery plans, we have federal recovery plans for ORCAs, and those are hard jobs within state and federal agencies. But at the same time, we need agencies to be talking together more and coordinating a bit more. We need them to engage with tribes more. We need the public to stay engaged with these. And frankly, the groups that might be giving something up to achieve these, they need to be in the room as well. So I'd like to see all of those groups engaged more in oversight. I don't yet know what that looks like, but that's something I'm very interested in creating over the next few months. What are some examples of recommendations that are likely to be introduced in the 2019 legislative session? That's a great question. We're looking at that now, and I don't know. It really depends on what happens within the task force, and I do expect the task force to respond to what the public has requested and really demanded for bold actions. But at this point, I don't yet know what happened since that process just closed last week. Going into the legislative session, we are looking at proposals that will be needed for implementing more habitat protection and restoration, enforcing existing laws, or maybe there's more that needs to be done. On the pollution side of things, there might be a few more authorities that are needed, but really we have the authorities that we need. We just need to do them more. And I think there will be some policy proposals related to an ORCA speed limit or the, the slow zones around ORCAs, and then also the limited entry permit system will require some form of legislation. So I'd like to see us be more specific on what that looks like, and then as soon as we can, start some work on those. What are some examples of recommendations that could be enacted through executive action? There are a number of actions that could be done by Governor Inslee himself and his office. A number of the actions, for example, include coordinating with Canada on some of our shared risks. A fourth area that is of deep concern to me personally is the risk of oil spills, which 
if we had even a moderate oil spill in Puget Sound, some of the studies show that that could devastate a significant part of the southern resident population. And that's just from today's fossil fuel facilities, but there's proposals to increase fossil fuel facilities both on the U.S. side of the border and in Canada. So I think that's an example where it will take executive level action on Governor Inslee's part. And I think not just him, frankly, he's going to need a team around him as well to engage with the Canadian government on how do we reduce the risk of oil spills. What role do you see for nonprofits in seeing that the recommendations are carried out? There's deep, deep interest in the nonprofit world. I have one of the very few seats on the task force for the nonprofit community And I've spent many, many hours in meetings engaging with my partners in the nonprofit world who have been working literally for decades on different areas of orca recovery, on Chinook recovery as well. And they are coordinated. They are galvanizing action among their members. They're turning people out to the task force. And frankly, they're educating the public on the threats that are facing the orcas. So I think the nonprofit community will stay deeply engaged with orca recovery. We are part of a group called the Orca Salmon Alliance, a number of organizations working together on behalf of orcas and Chinook salmon. But I think there's going to be quite a bit of coordination and concerted pressure put on our elected officials and decision makers to really move the needle forward on this. So what can listeners do to help the orcas? We're thinking about personal actions that people can take themselves, and we're working on a guide ourselves, and that has to be more intentional than take your car to a car wash, for example. But people do want to know what they can do. I think if you live in an urban area, thinking through the toxics that are in your everyday life, either in the way you get to work or school or your home, your yard, just use less of that. The second thing that we remind people about is it's incredibly important that people vote. I feel like it's the single most influential lever that you have for the future of the orcas. And election day is just around the corner. And third, take some time to talk with your neighbors, talk with your family, talk with your friends about the orcas. I have overheard snippets of conversation in restaurants, in the grocery store. I was at a wedding when people were talking about it. The more that we talk about it and the more people are aware of it, I feel like that gives power to the solutions. And that's what we'll need is really for the power of people's voices to push this forward. Just underscore again the next steps for the task force. Steps for the task force. We are meeting in Tacoma on October 17th and 18th. I just got word that there will be a public comment period the evening of October 17th. So that would be a great time for people to physically show up and make a statement to the task force itself. There will also be Another public comment period at the end of October that will come about a week after that task force meeting, another great opportunity for people really to speak on behalf of what they feel is needed for worker survival and for Chinook survival as well. After that, we meet on Election Day, and then that is when I expect that the task force will identify our consensus-based solutions. But then a report goes to Governor Inslee in mid-November. After that time, we're interested in keeping the momentum rolling into legislative session to make sure that the work gets done. And you'd also mentioned a report due in November 2019. That's right. And our task force was designed to be about a year and a half program. Our first year was a frenetic pace as everyone got up to speed, as we identified the um, just the deep threats to the Southern residents and have identified some really promising potential actions. I consider the package ambitious at this point. Our work is not done, and in 2019, the task force will reconvene to continue our work. And my hope is to strengthen 
I really do think that there is hope for the Southern residents after this past summer when Palakwa had buoyed her calf for 17 days, swam over a thousand miles around the Salish Sea. I literally have not seen this level of public engagement on an issue like this in the almost 20 years that I've been working on these issues. So my greatest hope is that we can make the best of an absolute terrible situation this summer and take action. I think that episode provides a face to Puget Sound recovery. And I think now that people understand that while Puget Sound as a whole looks lovely on the surface, and sure, we've got a few salmon here and there, we absolutely need to turn the tide on this situation. And that will benefit not just orcas, but Chinook salmon, and frankly, all of us who live in this region, not just the Puget Sound region, but Washington State and the Pacific Northwest. Well, thanks so much for being here, Mindy. Thank you very much for having me. You are just listening to Mindy Roberts, People for Puget Sound Program Director at Washington Environmental Council and a member of Governor Inslee's Orca Recovery Task Force. I'm Diane Horn. Thanks for listening on listener-powered 90.3 FM by mobile app and at kexp.org.